Welcome to Random Bible Thoughts with Ross. Tonight's study is going to be called, Does the Church Teach the Angels? I know some of my subjects that I study are kind of, you know, does it really matter? Well, in a sense, yeah, it does. In a sense, it does. But is it really, is it a Sovietic issue? No, not really. Is it something you may or may not hear in church? In a, a typical sermon? Yeah, probably not. You might hear a reference to the verses I'm going to use, but in the context that I'm using, probably not. But, you know, that's why I like doing this. I like to be kind of off the wall a little bit sometimes in what I'm studying. Like, I do have a study coming up. Um... And it's not really an off-the-wall study. It's an interesting study. Comparison to the verses in Matthew and other Gospels where it says, In the days of Noah, the return of the sun will be like in the days of Noah. And I compare, I take the, the verse in Matthew and I read through it and I compare it to uh, what it says about the flood in the days of Noah. And so I kind of compare those two. And I got a, another study, which I've made the uh, title for coming up. Um, and it'll be comparing the return of Christ to the Jewish wedding, to a Jewish feast, where the, uh, the son makes the announcement, uh, makes the, um, oh, I can't think of the word now. He makes the announcements of the way. The father sends the son home to build the house, to prepare for his bride. And then the father tells the son, go get your bride. And that's kind of how the return of Christ is going to be. So I go into some real good depth with that. But in between this study, I have my study in John 5. And it's 32 through 30, 33 through 37. I just completed that one this morning, so that'll be the one after this. Then I'll do one of those other studies, probably in like the Days of Noah study. And then I'll go back to John again and do John. And then I'll go into uh, probably the um, comparison of the return of Christ with a Jewish wedding. And so that's just uh, what I have coming up. I think I got one more chance really to do a ride where I don't have to bundle up too much. So I might get one more bike and Bible in. Uh, last weekend would have been a good time to do it, but I got to work in my house too. Unfortunately, I'm trying to get it painted before it gets too cold. It's, it's changing fast. So anyways, today's study, does the angels teach the church? Or does, sorry. Does the church teach the angels? And the main verses I have here is 1 Peter 1.12 and Ephesians 3.10. So, let's just go ahead and get into it, alright? It was revealed to them, this is 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things they haven't now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, Sent from heaven, listen to this, things in which the angels long to look. 
and I'll go into this verse a little bit more uh, further down. Ephesians 3.10, well, back up just a second. With the angels long to look. Why do they long to look? Well, here's something. Uh, people may not think about the angels in this sense, but they are not omniscience. They aren't all knowing. They don't know everything. They are servants of God. Servants of the Father, servants of the Son, servants of the Holy Spirit. They are servants. They are messengers. That's what angel means. Messenger. They don't know everything. Ephesians 3.10 So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'll get into this rulers and authorities here in just a little bit. So rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will be made known to them. These two verses would make it seem that angels don't have a full understanding of God's wisdom and what God's wisdom has done for humanity. And they desire to understand and see from the church, that is the body of Christ, of what God did. So let's start with 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them. The them are the prophets of the Old Testament. They understood that they were serving and ministering to the people of the day and the people of the future. The things they prophesied about were proven by the apostles, having now been announced through those who preached the good news to you. Proven by those, the apostles. Things in which the angels long to look. The angels long to understand or desire to understand God's eternal purpose for humanity. They, the angels, are watching. In 1 Corinthians 4, 9, it says this. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles at last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, and to the angels, and to men, making it necessary that Christians conduct themselves properly. Did you hear that? We've been made a spectacle to the world and to the angels. The angels are watching. Part of God's eternal purpose is to show his wisdom through the angelic beings, through his work with the church. God wants the angels to look in on what he does in the church. And the idea is that the angels are bending over with intense interest and desire to learn. From Hebert. Herbert, Hybert. Yeah, I think it's Hybert. Therefore, they desire to see and learn. The word desire denotes a strong interest or craving. The present tense portrays a present continued inner yearning to comprehend. The term does not imply that the desire cannot or should not be fulfilled but it does mark an enduring angelic effort to comprehend more the mystery of human salvation. See, he's saying now that they got a strong desire. They want to know. They want to understand this mystery. What is God doing with these people? These people that they don't deserve his love. We don't deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve God's grace. 
But the angels are sitting there going, why? We want to know. And you know what? I might not even be able to answer that question. But I'm going to try. In Grudem's systematic theology, the longing must therefore include a holy curiosity to watch and delight in the glories of Christ's kingdom as they find every fuller realization in their lives of individual Christians throughout the history of the church. The longing must include a holy curiosity with a delight in the glories of Christ's kingdom. You know, the angels find delight. They, they rejoice when one comes to Christ. They rejoice when one sinner is saved. They rejoice. They respond. And you know what? Maybe they still don't quite understand why are you doing this? God wants a holy people for himself. And maybe and, and maybe it's just a little side thought here. This thought comes from uh, um, the conversation I had with a friend of mine back in Nebraska uh, earlier this week. The angels don't have a will like we have. You know, they they can choose to go and follow. Well, like in when Satan fell from heaven to earth, he tried to, he did battle, and he lost. And a third of the angels chose to be with him. They chose to fight with Satan. They don't get a second chance. They don't get a second chance. But we as the people of earth, we fall. We get a second chance. And the angels want to know why. They want to understand why. Why, God, have you done this? Why have you allowed these people? They're lower than us. To have a second chance. Okay, back to Hebrew. First Timothy 3.16 Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaiming among the nations, believed one in the world, taken up in glory. Likewise, pictured the supernatural world, eagerly observing God's program of human redemption. This is a picture of the angels, the supernatural realm, the angels, world, eagerly, eagerly, Observing God's plan of redemption for humanity. The concept seems grounded in Jesus' words, where angels are said to rejoice, as I said earlier, over one repented sinner. And Luke 17, 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents then over 99 righteous peeper, peepers, peepers, oh, stupid dentures, over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. With the angels' desire to understand the salvation plan for our imperfect people, they are Excuse me. They are watching what's happening in the plan for salvation. And they rejoice when 
someone accepts God's plan for salvation. So the angels are watching. And when they see, you know, they may, uh, maybe they don't really understand yet. I don't understand, but God, look at They want you. They desire you. It's when you come to Christ. Some people say they desire God, but you really got to question that sometimes. Ephesians 3.10 So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. What is the church? There are various types of churches. Simple answer is a body of people united in their thinking. United in their concepts. United, I mean, a church in, in the, the general understanding of what might be considered a church doesn't necessarily have to have a, a, <clears throat> a religious overtone to it or undertone or any kind of tone. It's people that are united in one cause, basically. That's the basic things of what a church is. You might call it a club. You might call it a social event. Uh, you might call it any kind of thing. But basically, a church is just people that have come together, united in their thought. But I'm only going to look at what constitutes a Christian church. So what is a Christian church? The whole body of Christians scattered throughout the earth. It's not one particular building or denomination, although I don't believe in denominationalism. I think they're a failure to be united. It's all, and this is why I use this term, it's all Bible-believing Christians. All Bible-believing Christians throughout the world with Christ as the head of the church. In Colossians 1.18, and he, that is Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So firstborn means preeminent. He is preeminent. Okay, now here's a short rabbit trail here. There's a, sh a little bit of a rabbit trail. This is from the Christianity.com. And I think the church is definitely in this realm. A lot of churches are in this realm. Ones that are not sticking to the solidness of Scripture. Christianity says, The church's status today can often leave us frustrated and disappointed. I can't speak for the church globally, but I will speak about churches here in America. There are many areas where church has veered off course and need a course correction to get back on track. A good place to begin would be to remember that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, not some High official in the, in the Methodist Church, not some high official in the Lutheran Church, not some high official in the Evangelical Free Church, not some high official in, in the Catholic Church, not some high official in the J.W. Cult, Christian Cult Church or the Mormon Cult Church. 
not any one particular high official. This is, <coughs> excuse me, only Christ, only Christ is the head of the church. Not some Yahoo sitting up with his head stuck so far up his, anyways. I do get a little riled up sometimes. Too often we have made church about personalities, programs, politics, and entertainment. And left Christ, the head of the church, out of the mix. We may mention his name, but we don't want his influence and leadership to manifest themselves. Oops, too far. What if it threatened our position? The problem not only shows in some of the things that happen on Sundays, the problem is also clear in how we, Christ followers, behave outside the church in the church sanctuary. Time is now for the church to return to the roots, recognizing Christ is the head of the church. We must recognize that the leadership in everything we do, not just pay him lip service, we must recognize his leadership in everything we do and do and not pay lip service. The cornerstone, the important stone for building a proper foundation. Christ, as the head, holds a position that no one else can occupy. It's not Peter. It's not the Pope. Only Christ. Only Christ is the cornerstone, and no one else can occupy that. He is the superior figure of the church. He is the essential piece in building and maintaining the church. Without him, we end up with a weak, dysfunctional church void of any power or influence. I know we like to blame the culture or society for this, but the church must also shoulder some of the blame. We have moved away from Christ as our sure foundation. We have made the church about something else other than Jesus. And this last part is more my commentary, although I added some additional commentary to what I read there, some additional mo motions. But here's my commentary on this little article. What I see the church is doing is it's compromising scripture to support their own personal beliefs and or compromising scripture to support the evil penetration evil penetrating society and the church today and you start saying these moral values of god's word are insignificant because society says it's okay you're going you're gonna to fail as a church. You might grow. You might become popular with society. You might think you got it all. But you know what's going to happen in the end? In the end when Christ returns and collects his bride, what's going to happen? You're going to be locked out of that room. You're going to knock on that door and say, Lord, let me in. And he's going to say, I don't know you. I don't know you. You have to stay solid to the biblical teaching of God's word. You cannot compromise it 
and expect to make it. So let's get back to the study. Ephesians 3.10 Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's wisdom is made known through the true Bible-believing church, not the compromised church. The church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful painting. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. God's wisdom is reflected in the church's construction. The church is to be an audio-visual display of God's reconciling work. In this primary way, the church testifies to God's grace and wisdom. So Paul encouraged living life in Christ in such a way that reconciling Reconciliation is the dominant feature of church life. To use the words of the day, the church is all-inclusive. Anyone can come to Christ and receive forgiveness. But, that does not mean you can continue to live in sin as scripture defines sin. Not as society defines sin, as scripture defines sin. Because society is flawed. Society is going by the wayside. If you're of that, what well, scripture considers immoral lifestyle, and you come to Christ, you need to give up that lifestyle. And I'll, and I'll in Spanish further, if you're a heterosexual couple, living a sinful lifestyle, relations together without being married, and you both come to Christ, you need to stop it. That's immoral. So the immorality goes more than just what society says in, in, in respect. <clears throat> We're all inclusive. Christianity is all-inclusive. You can all come. You can all be saved. You can all be redeemed. But when you do, you also got to give up that lifestyle, the sinful lifestyle. Okay. Romans 6, 1 through 2. And here's what happens when we come to Christ and if we sin, which we will. You know, yeah, I don't think anybody is sinless, because if they were, they wouldn't be here, quite frankly. So, but if you do sin, Romans 6, 1-2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to live in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. By no means. How can we have died to sin still live in it? This verse is referencing... That when you come to Christ, and I've already said this basically, you die to sin. Therefore, that lifestyle must end. You must stop living in sin. We will have times of failure. And for that reason, we have an advocate for the Father. When you stumble as a Christian, when you stumble and you fall, there is an advocate. First John 2.1 my little children, I write you this thing, these things so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, 
there is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let me read that again. Or let me quote it again. I don't know if I actually read it. So let me read it just to make sure I got it word for word. My little children, I am writing these things that you to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay? So, rulers and authorities. I think I've gone through that enough. Rulers and authorities. Oh, wow. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are angels. Another example of angels, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may not be that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, these are angels. And you can look at scripture and you find that the demons don't look like TV shows them. Angels. They are angels. We can see in verse 12 it identifies some of the same ranked angels. In this case, the context would indicate to me that these are the fallen angels. And I like to back up and look at a word manifold. Manifold is Greek in the Greek is Strong's 4182, and its pronunciation is Polo It comes from two Greek words, one meaning many, and the other meaning various colors. God's colorful wisdom is manifested in the body of Christ the church. The angels are watching and seeing the work of God's wisdom within the Bible-believing church. From David Guzik, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, this means that angelic beings are interested and instructed by the lives of Christians. This is why the conduct of the church is so important, because angelic and demonic beings are looking on, and God's intent is to teach them through us. Alfred, the angels are instructed in God's wisdom by the fact that the great spiritual body constituted in Christ, which they contemplate, which they contemplate, and which is to them the theater of the glory of God. <clears throat> Scott, Scott, Stott, S-T-O-T-T, quoting McKay. The history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. To answer the question, does the church teach the angels? I believe so, yes. The church is a university of the angels. I hope you enjoyed this. I'm sorry I get I do get emotional on some kind of things. Uh, 27 minutes long here, which is a little longer than I care to do, but sometimes you just got to get things off your chest and say it. You know, it's simple as that. If you like my video, 
please give me a like, leave me some comments, subscribe, share, uh, all those things that you do on Facebook, and you should be able to also hear this, hear this on uh, iHeartRadio and Spotify on my podcast there. Uh, both my podcasts and my videos are under Random Bible Thoughts with Russ. And may you have a wonderful evening. God bless.